Welcome back, my bubblas. Reminder that I write and I record to share a unique and independent point of view that you won't find elsewhere, but this is a crowdfunded project and it depends on your support, my readers, my listeners. Please go to leebressler.substack.com slash subscribe to sign up. It's not very expensive and uh, I appreciate it. I asked a question on the last episode, which was why people have a toilet brush in each bathroom of their home. I got a lot of feedback on this. I mean, look, personally, here's what I'm trying to understand. If I'm in my own home, I'm going to use the toilet brush once a week or once every two weeks. However, often I like, you know, clean my apartment very uh, uh, intensively. But it's it's not a daily use item. It's not something you need handy all the time. And if I were in someone else's home, first of all, I think it would be atrocious to take a crap in someone else's home. I mean, that's a, a, a weird power move. But also, I, I, I just, I can't imagine using a toilet brush in someone else's home. Now, I got a lot of responses. And the responses were along the lines of, if you have a high fiber diet, then uh, you're going to have a blowout every time you go and you might need to clean the bowl, which I I don't know, maybe Uh, others who said that they were going to consolidate it, that they'd never thought about it before. And now they're going to consolidate it and just have one brush or one plunger or one of each and, and keep them under the kitchen sink, which is where they belong. Uh, I, you know, there was like some concern that if you centralize them, then when you transport it from the kitchen to wherever you're using it in the bathroom, that you you might be spreading fecal matter around your home. But I don't know. I mean, just keep it in a in a plastic bag or something. Like, what what do you think CVS bags are for? Uh, just it it seems a little bizarre to me. I uh, I watched the new movie The Last Duel. I do not recommend it. It was very boring. Uh, there's the the highlight, I guess, was was Ben Affleck with bleached blonde hair looking like he's Eminem. Uh, there's a fat Matt Damon. There's Adam Driver. I don't, I don't get the magic of Adam Driver. I never thought he was such a compelling actor. He sort of has one, one, one character he plays and it's the same and it, it doesn't feel very dynamic to me. Uh, I didn't like him in any of the Star Wars movies. I mean, those were poorly written, so that might have contributed to it. But he was in Girls. The the first season of Girls was pretty good, but then it just became unbearable. And 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 the highlight of Girls was the girls. It wasn't him. We had a uh, huge snowstorm in New York over the weekend, or moderate snowstorm, I should say. I got uh, Chinese takeout from Empire Szechuan. There aren't many Empire Szechuan restaurants left in New York City. When I was growing up, it was a big chain. They used to leave these actual Chinese menus under the door of every building, every townhouse, all over the place. They, you know, People used to put signs that said no menus, but you don't have to do that anymore because nobody leaves menus around. And the, the cover of the Empire Szechuan menus always had a coupon for a free cold sesame noodles. I think one mark of a true, of being a true New Yorker Like if you were born and raised here, then you have an obsession with cold sesame noodles. You you can't order Chinese food with lobbing in 
at the end of the order. You call them up and, you, and you, at the end, you, you always say, uh, and I have a coupon for free cold sesame noodles. Like it's just, it's, it's instinct when you're ordering Chinese food. And what's amazing to me is that it works at almost every Chinese restaurant in New York. Like even if they never offered that promotion, you can still pull that off. When I was a kid, uh, we would order Chinese food on Sunday nights and uh, uh, my parents would order half the food from one restaurant and half from another restaurant so that that way they could get two separate free orders of, uh, of the noodles. You know, the history of the dish is a little controversial. There's this, this guy who's named Shorty Tang, who supposedly invented it in the 1960s. And then it, it quickly spread to just about every Sichuan restaurant in New York and became a staple on the menu. And uh, there's a place in Chinatown called Huayuan that's known for having an excellent version of the dish. I went there last year. I was very impressed. I thought the food was great there. Uh, there's a place on the Upper East Side called Wajil that has a, a very spicy version that, that's really good. So in 2016, this guy, Shorty Tang, he, he's long dead. And for a very long time, no one was was producing his recipe of the noodles, or or at least not like you know, there were people producing it and claimed it was his recipe, but who, who really knows? And then in 2016, his son and his grandson opened a restaurant that was called Shorty Tang Noodle. And they supposedly were cooking the family secret original recipe there. I went to the restaurant when it opened. I wasn't particularly impressed. I've had much better versions of the dish. Uh, I'm including in the Substack some links that tell a bit of the story of the, the history of this dish. I, I recommend reading them. It's it's fascinating. Um, the, the, the stories reference a guy named Ed Schoenfeld quite a bit. Ed was this big guy. He sort of looked like Santa Claus. And he was like a walking history of Chinese food in America. And sadly, uh, Eddie died of liver cancer two weeks ago, but his influence on on Chinese food in New York and, and in the entire country cannot be overstated. I, I met him at uh, a restaurant called Red Farm a few years ago, uh, which was a place that he opened. There was one in the West Village, one on the Upper West Side. He was a lovely guy. He had a great impact on, on the New York food scene. And maybe this is weird, but I always drink milk when I eat Chinese food, not like in a restaurant. I mean, I think if you ordered a glass of milk in a restaurant, that's like a surefire sign that you're a serial killer. But when I get takeout at home, I always drink a nice tall glass of milk with it. I, I mean, I enjoy drinking milk with a lot of things, but especially with Chinese food. Does anyone else do this? On the subject of food, I was thinking about all of the online grocery delivery companies that have been popping up. I love to cook. I love to eat. I love to cook and eat. Uh, I, I have mixed feelings though about grocery shopping. It's when it comes to like, you know, the staples, I find it to be incredibly tedious. If I'm getting stuff I've gotten in the past, it's very tedious. There are though certain supermarkets that I love going to the ones that I think in, in a, in a less woke world, we would have called them ethnic supermarkets. I love going to H Mart, which is Korean. I love going to Patel Bros. That's Indian. Mediterranean Foods, that's a Greek supermarket. At those stores, I can browse for hours and things feel exotic and, and like there's new flavors and I get new ideas and inspiration. I love going to Fairway. Uh, I grew up three blocks from 
the original fairway on Broadway and 74th Street. And so, you know, to me, fairway, it's like in the same genre as cold sesame noodles. It's it's like one of those formative things for me. Shopping at the original fairway, if you've never done it, uh, it's a it's a supermarket, a lot of fresh stuff, um, probably more fresh than packaged foods than a, a normal supermarket would have. And uh, it, there was one originally in New York City and shopping there was a full contact sport. There were just hundreds of old Jewish ladies with those little metal carts that they'd be pushing around and they would shove you out of the way for cheese and olives. And I mean, it was fun because it was like a competitive activity, but shopping for groceries is so time consuming now. And then you got to schlep the groceries home. So you end up with those, those lines on your hands from holding the heavy bags. I mean, no, thank you. I can do a bicep workout in the gym. And now they have those reusable bags, which seems, I I think this is an ill-conceived plan because those things are not going to ever biodegrade. You you, you rarely remember to bring them with you to the store. So now we're just going to have millions of these weird cloth bags from Target lying around. So I love, you know, because I, I, I don't like shopping, I love the idea of grocery delivery. Like, you know, provided that you trust that they aren't going to bring you broken eggs and rotten avocados. I like the idea. It can be hit or miss depending on the service that you use, depending on the store. And and some of the stuff that they bring you is clearly so rotten that you have to think that the the shopper person was playing a prank on you by picking it. But if you figure, if they do a decent job, you figure that it saves an hour or more by having someone else do this. That's easily worth paying someone to do. And for a while, all of these startups were like, you know, a lot of these Silicon Valley startups, they were funded by some some venture capitalist who was fine with burning cash to subsidize things because the idea was later on, you it would generate customer loyalty, or it would convince you that you needed a service that you didn't even realize you needed. Matt Levine, uh, who writes money stuff for Bloomberg, he wrote a, a great piece on this on January 19th. I don't know how to link to it. I think it, it's email only for subscribers, but it was a great piece. And it was about how a dollar of revenue at one of these companies was worth such a large multiple that for the companies, it was worth it to take venture capitalist equity and burn that and turn it into revenue. Like you'd rather subsidize someone because a dollar of revenue was worth such a big multiple. And uh, I I guess I get that. I don't think it's happening quite as much anymore, Um, but I tried these services, Instacart and stuff like that. I found them to be indispensable. I think the service was outstanding. You'd get your groceries in one to two hours. You didn't have to waste your time at the store. And I'm fine with paying for that. Initially, the fees were close to zero. That that never felt sustainable. And I have a willingness to pay for this. The idea of paying someone, I don't know, seven bucks, eight bucks, 10 bucks to do this task seems like a no brainer to me. But then all of these providers started to raise their prices in two ways. The first way was through an, an, an explicit fee that they implemented. And again, I'm fine with that. That makes sense. I have no complaint there. The second way, though, felt deceptive. And and it was hidden because what would happen is that the prices that were charged in the store 
were much lower than the prices listed in the app, right? You buy a head of broccoli in the store, it's like $1.99. In the app, it would be $2.49. And so a basket of items that would be 100 bucks in the store would be $120 or $130 when you do it through the app plus the delivery fee. But there's no transparency. And that's the part that I take issue with because it it makes the total cost murkier. It makes it harder to tell how much I'm spending. And so I, I don't like that. You know, when we discussed inflation, we, we did a, uh, an episode about inflation a couple of months ago. And I, I said that I think the total productivity gains created by technology have been undercounted for years. And, and this is sort of an example of this, the idea of easily outsourcing your grocery shopping for a small fee creates such an efficiency and time savings. I don't think the the benefits of this have been fully counted or appreciated yet. The idea that you suddenly get an extra hour or two hours a week or something. I mean, so here, here's the math that I, I crunched through when I thought about this the last time. The average GDP per hour for a working age adult is about $51. And the average adult makes 1.6 trips to the grocery store each week and spends 43 minutes per trip. So you're talking about, as a whole, for Americans, 296 million man hours per week. I mean, if you spent even a, a, a portion of that on something more productive, that's a huge boost to GDP. If all of that went to something more productive, that's something like a, a $780 billion boost to GDP. Even, even half that is very significant. So I think this is a, a, a valuable service. I just don't like how deceptive it feels. And, and you know, I love the idea of it. I just wish there was more pricing transparency. I don't like feeling like I'm getting ripped off. Have you seen those new commercials for the Apple Watch? I don't know. Is it called the iWatch? Do they only put the i in the front if it's an iPhone or an iPad? The commercials are really weird because they, what they make clear is that the only use case for these watches is as a successor to those medic alert bracelets. They are clearly a great product if you are very old. Remember those those commercials that were like, I've fallen and I can't get up. It was more like, I've fallen and I can't get up. And they'd show those like really, really old people. They'd have Neil Young and and he'd fall down and he'd be lying on the floor trying to stand up. And that is what the Apple Watch is for, apparently. One of the commercials shows someone in the middle of the ocean and then somehow they have like cell signal on their watch and then they're like i got lost in the ocean can you save me and then there's another one where where someone is in a car accident and they're upside down and the car is filling up with water and then they they call 911 and supposedly this is like a real 911 call and they start going like thank goodness for my apple watch you know Giannis Papas, great comedian talked recently about how amazing these would be for the women who fall off of cruise ships you know there's there's always like people on these carnival cruises it's like a married couple and then somehow the woman falls overboard and drowns even though they have like such high walls and and miraculously it's always the women with big life insurance policies and and their husbands are drinking i mean how does that happen so much i gotta say that cruises 
just seem like an awful way to spend a vacation. Everybody gets the Novavirus. And, you know, uh, Giannis Papas also made the point that uh, uh, Ghislaine Maxwell's father could have benefited from one of these watches. Remember, he was a spy for the Mossad and a British businessman, and he somehow fell off his yacht and drowned which was very mysterious, but not if he had an Apple Watch, though. That's uh need to wear one of those to protect against the Mossad. I talked a bit about the Joe Rogan controversy earlier this week. This is not going to surprise anyone, or it shouldn't, but I come down very squarely on the side of free speech, and I find the entire concept of labeling something disinformation or misinformation to be such utter nonsense. I mean, it is just, it's a vague term with no clear meaning. It is used, it it is weaponized by those who want to silence the people that they disagree with. It's in the same genre as terrorism. It's one of these vague terms with no real meaning and no no real definition that's just used to try to make people go, oh, it must be bad. And for the past several years, these terms have been bandied about by the mainstream content companies to try to diminish the standing of others and, and to anoint themselves as some sort of arbiters of truth. It is a a power play. And you know, maybe if these folks had a a perfect track record of distinguishing the capital T truth, maybe that would be one thing, but they don't come close. It's just the opposite. Often the biggest peddlers of false information are those who love using this label. It's the folks who, who told us stories about Russian collusion and the PP tape and the the Russian bounties in Afghanistan and Hunter Biden's laptop and Havana syndrome. It was all phony. How much ink did they spill telling us about that? It was all nonsense. How is it possible that companies like CNN or MSNBC or the New York Times, which all purport to convey the news, that they could still be in business when their track record is this bad. And we haven't even touched on all the COVID nonsense that they conveyed. That's a long list as well. And this doesn't mean that somehow the QAnon retards are accurate. This is not me siding with them. It doesn't mean that somehow Robert Kennedy Jr. is a genius and a purveyor of the truth. There can be idiots all around. But last week, Neil Young, this decrepit musician, declared that Spotify had to remove his music if they wouldn't kick Joe Rogan off their app. Now, Spotify signed Rogan to a $100 million deal, and he's surely worth more to them than Neil Young is. I don't think Neil Young had to finish his sentence before they pulled his music. Neil Young said that he takes issue with Joe Rogan peddling misinformation. But what exactly is it that 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 Mr. Young, what what an ironic name. What is it that that Mr. Old disagrees with? Which bits of information? What what makes some obvious dimwit like Neil Young 
the 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 one who has the clear vision of the truth. If you if if he disagrees with something specific, make your case. Because the antidote to bad information is better information. The antidote to bad speech is more speech. Now, I'm not a huge fan of Joe Rogan's show. I mean, I think he's remarkably talented. I think he gets interesting guests. I think he asks them good questions. I think he asks them the questions that a lot of his listeners want answers to, and he asks them from a wide variety of sources. I think that helps to uncover new and interesting narratives or, or narratives that hadn't got gotten as much attention previously. And I think that what he is doing is essential. He is taking power from the mainstream content companies, and they're furious. They're furious. The NBCs and CNNs of the world are furious that Joe Rogan is taking their audience and he's taking their trust. But you know what? They lost that trust. They sacrificed it. Look, what I'm trying to do with this show is is in many ways kind of similar. I don't bring on as many guests as Joe Rogan does. I don't claim to have half the talent that he does. But I, I'm I'm here to expose a new and unique narrative. But you know what makes Neil Young's tantrum so peculiar is Rogan has guests who may say inaccurate things. He has guests who say unconventional things, but they aren't really cranks. And and Joe Rogan is not the guy I would peg for spreading misinformation. I think you'll find a lot more misinformation just watching Rachel Maddow or 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 Joy Reid or some other buffoon. How about Whoopi Goldberg who who went on a bizarre rant about the Holocaust and doesn't she spread more misinformation and ignorance than Joe Rogan ever did? You know, I've said many times on the show that when you are confident in your ideas, when you are confident in your mandate, it is a lot more comfortable to allow others to speak freely because you don't feel threatened. Suppression of ideas comes from a place of insecurity. If someone starts spouting off that COVID shots have microchips, I don't need to agree with him, but I don't need to silence that voice either. The free market of ideas is critical. And beyond that, the ability for new voices to gain a foothold is critical. It's part of why I love using Substack, why I've been publishing on Substack for two years. Substack clearly cares about free speech. They said as much this week. And they've provided a home for so many voices that otherwise would not be heard. It's allowed people to monetize their writing and their ideas in a way that you could not do before unless you had a book deal or or a job at a major publication. How many great ideas see the light of day that wouldn't have gotten an audience previously? I don't know what Neil Young's ideas are. I don't know what he believes. I don't know what he thinks is accurate. I don't, I don't really care. That's his business. But you don't need to, to blackmail others and you don't need to silence others when your ideas are good. Because be, they, they, they will win on the merits. It's time for a quick word from our sponsor. I love podcasts. You love podcasts. Osama bin Laden loved podcasts, I think. He was a big true crime buff. 
and I publish The Lee Show using Anchor. I think it's a great service. I tested out a number of options. This was clearly the best. They have great sound quality. It's the same company. Anchor is made by the same company that created the weapons that cause Havana syndrome. How cool is that? And it's owned by Spotify as part of their quest to destroy Neil Young. Anchor provides the tools that let you record and edit from your phone, from your computer. I record my audio, I upload it, and distribute it to all the major podcasting platforms. It's very easy. They'll get you on Spotify, they'll get you on Apple Podcasts, all the leading players, and you can make big bucks. So download the free Anchor app or go to anchor.fm to get started. I mentioned Havana Syndrome earlier. This is one of the weirder phenomena of the past few years. If you're not familiar with it, uh, quick, quick background here. In 2016, there were some workers at the U.S. Embassy in Cuba that began to report having very bizarre symptoms. Uh, and then in 2017, there were workers at embassies in China, in Europe, and, and in Washington, D.C., who all reported the same thing. They reported hearing loss, memory loss, nausea, headaches, and and not only was it was it these workers, but it was also their family members who experienced these syndromes. So the speculation at the time was that the Russians, it's always the Russians, were using a sonic weapon. And this weapon was directing what's called infrasound waves at the building with the embassy that would cause headaches and, and other symptoms. And so all of these workers went and had brain imaging studies done and they couldn't detect any abnormalities, no definitive cause. During some of the incidents in Havana, personnel at the embassy made recordings of the sounds that they were hearing so that they could be analyzed because surely this would be proof of a Russian plot, except that Biologists at the University of California, Berkeley, found that the sound was caused by short-tailed crickets, not a technological device. And in 2018, a group of physicists working for the U.S. government analyzed the audio recordings from eight of these incidents and concluded that they were the sounds of, ins uh, of insects. So, of course, the proponents of the, the weapon theory, they double down. And so what they say is it's definitely a weapon. And the Russians unleashed a swarm of crickets at the same time as their sonic cannon to disguise the weapon. This whole sonic weapon theory is one of the dumber ideas to take hold over the past several years. And there, there's plenty of competition for that title. But it's it's one of these theories that has been seized on by the midwit journalists as evidence that the Russians are trying to attack us in these very sophisticated ways. They told us that they had infiltrated our elections, that they had colluded with the president, that they had corrupted the national security advisor, that they'd put bounties on American soldiers in Afghanistan. It was all nonsense. And, and I'm no apologist for, for Russians. I mean, I have like one Russian friend. I haven't spoken to him in a long time. 
in general, I find, you know, Russians aren't aren't my favorite group to spend time with. A little too much with the Versace logos and and the scowling. I could do without that. It's not. It's never nice when you go on vacation to a resort and then there's Russians there. Like I went to Courchevel once. Russians everywhere. It just. I mean, it ruins the place. I wrote. Uh, I wrote last week about the situation in Ukraine. Now, to summarize, Russia has like a hundred thousand troops massed on the border of Ukraine, and Russia seemingly wants to take over part of Ukraine, particularly the eastern portion of the country where most people are ethnic Russians. In 2014, Russia took over something called the Crimean Peninsula, which is a, a small peninsula in southern Ukraine. Now, Ukraine is a it's a huge country. If you have not done this, I highly recommend that you just go look at a map, like pull up Google Maps right now and look at Ukraine. It is enormous. It's it's a very large country. And to the north, you've got Russia on, on the northeast. You've got Belarus to the northwest. You've got Poland to the west and the rest of Europe. And then to the south, you've got the, the Black Sea. So if you look at that, at that map and you sort of zoom in, what you'll see is there's a very big river that splits the country in two. That's the Dnieper River. And to the, to the east of that, a lot of the people who live there are... Russian people. To the West, it is Ukrainian people. And so to the West, you have the folks who are desperate for Ukraine independence. They want to ally with Europe. They want Ukraine to join NATO. They want a strong and independent Ukraine. To the East is the Russians who either don't really care or want to uh, want to be a part of, of Russia. Now, if, if Russia attacks, ostensibly this is bad. Right. It's it's bad. They'll tell you in the news it's bad because Russia is bad. It's bad because it's a, an attack on 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 Europe. It's bad because Ukraine is supposedly democratic and lawful and Russia is like corrupt and, and controlled by a dictator and a bully. I mean, isn't Ukraine corrupt and controlled by a dictator and a bully? U Ukraine, by the way, their their economy is meaningful for its production of wheat. It's one of the largest exporters of wheat in the world. Not a ton else, though. People have bachelor parties there. And, you know, I've heard, like, you arrive, and at the airport in Kiev, the you, they'll pick you up in a tank with, like, a, a dwarf and some hookers riding on the turret of the tank. And I guess that's fun for Instagram or something. I, I don't know. Um Look, I'm not going to make any excuses for Vladimir Putin. Uh, I don't think Vladimir Putin is a force for good in the world. I think he is a bad dude. I think he is a tyrant. I think he is oppressive to the people that he claims to rule, and he does it while enriching himself and his cronies. I think the world would be a much better place without Vladimir Putin in it, and I have no qualms about saying that. They're probably not going to give me a visa the next time I try to go there. But also, I don't particularly care about Ukraine. Because if Russia were to take over a, a, a sliver or even the entire eastern half of Ukraine, would that matter? Like maybe it would matter for people who live there. I'm not even sure about that. I think a lot of them are, are Russian and, and, and wouldn't really care. 
But I'm certain that it would not matter for me or for most other people living in the U.S. And by the way, if it does matter, why can't this be Europe's problem? Why don't, why don't their diplomats and their soldiers go fight this fight? Europe has plenty of people. It has plenty of soldiers. They can handle this. And I'm just not sure why Ukraine's territorial integrity is significant. It, it's surely not worth American treasure and lives to go protect it. It's not of, of strategic significance to us in any way. Now, I don't think that Russia can invade with 100,000 troops. That, that's not the army that you need to invade the largest country in Europe. If I had to guess, what do you need? 200,000, 300,000, maybe 500,000 troops? I mean, this is a huge country. And Russia does not have the tolerance for a meaningful number of casualties. Russia invaded Chechnya in 2008, and they withdrew so quickly when casualties started to mount. If Putin tried to invade with his his tiny army of 100,000 people, I mean, there's going to be volunteers streaming in from everywhere that are going to be sniping at his, his scattered units, and he will turn tail quickly. This is an opportunity to, to, for other Europeans to have a go here and, and, and do some target practice. There are plenty of, of ex-infantry and snipers in the EU. They would love to, to, to do target practice on Russian officers. Look, in any situation, I don't think the, the Russians are going to invade before or during the Olympics. That's coming up soon. And I think the window to do so afterwards would be quite short before there's the spring thaw. After th there's the thaw, the ground is going to be too soft for Russian tanks. And the intelligence community in the U.S. has been feeding the narrative that war is imminent. They, they seed these stories in uh, uh, NBC and CNN about the drumbeat of war. And it seems to me like a false narrative. I think the evacuation of the U.S. Embassy in Kiev was hasty and premature, and it was based on this, this crazy narrative. But this community, this intelligence community, which is such a, an oxymoronic name, it's the same group of idiots that have gotten just about everything wrong over the past several years. The, the WMDs in Iraq, remember that one? Or, or that the Afghan army was a real force that would control the country. Why, why would we trust the boy who cried wolf now? There's this, this sort of mistaken belief. I wrote about this last week. There's this mistaken belief that somehow NATO is a meaningful force at this point. NATO has been largely neutered by Russia. And the mechanism for this was very sophisticated. The mechanism for this was to focus on Germany. Russia has bribed German politicians for years. They offer consulting jobs, consulting in, in, in air quotes here, after retiring from office. So you go, you serve in the, the German parliament for a couple of years or even higher up. We're talking even the chancellor of Germany. That's like the highest leader in Germany. So you go and do that for a couple of years, and as long as you don't say anything that's going to piss Russia off while you're in office, 
When you retire, you get a job that pays about a million euros a year as a consultant. Now, this system, it's so corrupt and it's so prevalent that it even has a name. It's called Schmuskers in, in German. And this is the system that was used to bribe the German politicians who decided to build the Nord Stream 2 pipeline, which has made Germany more dependent on Russian natural gas. And Germany did this while shutting down its nuclear power plants. And this was all in the name of protecting the environment. So now that Russia is threatening its neighbor, it's silly to think that NATO is the, the force that's going to stand up to them. It's not going to be Germany. I mean, look, there, there are many other countries that have been offering to send weapons to Ukraine. And do you know what, uh, what, what Germany sent? They sent 5,000 helmets. I mean, that's about as useful as when, when something goes, when there's a disaster and people are like, well, we're sending thoughts and prayers. Oh, great. That in, that in 275 will get you on the subway. Th thanks for that one. Thank you for joining me today. Thank you for listening to, uh, to this podcast. Remember that I write and I record to share a point of view that you will not find elsewhere in the media, but I depend on your support to do it. So please sign up as a paid subscriber, leebressler.substack.com slash subscribe. And if you enjoyed this, please share it with your friends, with your colleagues. You can find me on Twitter and Instagram, and I will be back with more soon.